I'm a kid from New Jersey and I get frustrated and I got sick and tired of hearing people in marketing and other industries talk about how, you know, they're quote unquote, not creative. I'm like, "Mm, not how creativity works. Like if you actually look at the science around creativity and like you read about creativity, it's actually very clear to academics that creativity is a learnable, nurturable skill. And I knew this, but I realized, you know, probably about four or five years ago, but this is not how we think of creativity in Western culture. We think of creativity as this magical, mystical thing that, you know, some people just pop out of the womb with these amazing creative talents. And that's just not true. And so the book really came out of this frustration and also this, this wanting for people to live up to their potential. I really, really, really dislike when people limit themselves, especially when it's by some social construct that is you know, radically untrue. podcast. My name is Ryan McGinnis and I'm your host. In this episode, we chat with Alan Gannett, who is the founder and CEO of TrackMaven. TrackMaven is a marketing insights company helping marketers answer left brain questions around data, defining the ROI of their activities so they can be focused more on storytelling and why they became marketers in the first place. Alan is one of the most extroverted people I know. And if you don't know Alan, maybe you've seen one of his LinkedIn videos, which have amassed over 1 million views as he spends a few minutes every week interviewing super interesting guests on one particular topic the audience will find interesting. Alan has a book coming out tomorrow called The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time. Uh, So I will put the link to the book in the show notes in the description uh, so you guys can make sure to get a copy. So in this interview, we actually talk about the book, about creativity in general, and why a weird dream about LinkedIn video has helped Alan create some of the most viral content on the platform. Hope you guys enjoy. It's all about the first half of the book is debunking this inspiration theory of creativity and explaining the real way that it works. And the second half of the book is I interviewed 25 living creative geniuses. These are like billionaires like David Rubenstein. I interviewed Pasek and Paul, the songwriting duo who did La La Land, Dear Evan Hansen, and The Greatest Showman. Um, I interviewed Jose Andres. I interviewed a whole bunch of different people. The thing that I took from those interviews is I found these four recurring patterns of things they did to actually enhance their creativity and actually to nurture it in the way I talk about. And so I break down those four things. And so one of the things I thought was most interesting about the whole process is that, you know, track Maven, we're constantly giving people data to inform their creative process. And we do this obviously in the context of marketing, but when I actually dug into it, this is actually happens in every industry in all sorts of ways we don't realize. I spent a day with the flavor team at Ben and Jerry's, um, you know, actually following them as they, you know, do R&D on new flavors. And like you think about ice cream and food as this very sort of like organic and like touch and feel and taste process. But like it's incredibly data driven. They actually do all these email surveys about consumer taste and preference to help figure out what people like and don't like and what flavors are that right blend of like unique, but also um, familiar enough for people to actually want to buy them. Everyone has heard the overnight success story of someone having an idea, and there's a consolidated timeline of events so that it appears that stardom happened not long after it. Um, one of those stories that we've heard is J.K. Rowling. And in this next bit, Alan talks about the truth of Harry Potter and actually what it takes to get to that level. You know, think about a lot of these stories we hear, like J.K. Rowling, you know, you hear the story about her being on a train and get an idea for Harry Potter and she wrote it down on a napkin and like, that's not true. I mean, I interviewed her first agent and publisher for the book. And like the true story of JK Rowling is she was on a train 
she got the idea for the character Harry Potter and some of his sidekicks. This was after spending her whole childhood reading all these fiction books and you know engrossing herself in books and stories. And so, yeah, of course she daydreams about stories and characters. And then she spent five years, five years writing the first book, right? I mean, it's a ton of work, a ton of actually like diving in. Um, it's not the story of her just, you know, popping out an idea and, you know, a year later being a billionaire. No, 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 no. That is not what actually happened. So I think we often mistake the fact that we see the end result of ideas. And from that, we're like, oh, look, like, look at this conclusion. Like, look at this book. It's done. It's in front of me. And it's really hard for us to imagine or visualize how much work went into something, how iterative it was, how long it took. Uh, you know, I had sort of a meta experience, obviously, you know, writing a book about creating um, ideas that break out is obviously like a high pressure situation because the book doesn't do well. You're not good. Um, but one of the things I thought was so interesting is like, as I was writing the book, I realized like the way the book went from like, okay, to good, to good, to hopefully great was huge amounts of rewriting, huge amounts of gathering feedback. And this was not an experience that's solo to me. Like when I talk to other authors, like there's a very common experience is like just ingesting huge amounts of outside opinions to get the book good because you're on your own little world and it's hard for you to really recognize what's going to come off um, as that right blend of familiar novel to your audience because you're so in it, right? You need that external data. So I mentioned at the beginning of the episode about Alan's LinkedIn videos and how he's found a way to achieve virality around really helpful content. Here's the story of how a dream Alan had led to beta access of LinkedIn video. I think you guys will enjoy this one. I was writing a book. I just finished writing a book on thoughtful creativity, right? And so this was very much on my mind when I saw that they launched the beta. Um, and so this is a silly story, but basically I was like, I kept, I was thinking about, I really was trying to figure out how to get in the beta and I just kept ruminating on it. And then I literally had a dream about it, which is, this is how dorky I get. I had a dream that I was like on a rooftop bar and in the dream, for some reason, Jeff Bezos, not Jeff Weiner, owned LinkedIn. And like, this is where the dream gets weird. And so I was on this rooftop bar and Jeff Bezos was there and I asked him for access to LinkedIn video. And he was like, sure. And I was like, oh, great. And then the next morning I woke up and I was like, that's a weird, dorky dream. And then I was like, I bet you if I post that on LinkedIn, Jeff Weiner will see it and give me LinkedIn video access because he's pretty active on LinkedIn. And so I, I, you know, adapted the story to say Jeff Weiner instead of Jeff Bezos because that's just a confusing detail. And so I posted um, on LinkedIn, like, um, I had a dream that Jeff Weiner gave me LinkedIn video access. Um, what do you think this means? I think it just means I'm the world's biggest dork. And, um, and lo and behold, like 17 hours later, he comments and he goes, no, it means you can see the future. You now have access, smiley face. And so I was like, oh, great. And so I had sort of known, like I run a marketing data company. I knew that short form video did really well on Facebook. I knew obviously, you know, entrepreneur interviews were doing really well on podcasts. Um, and so my whole idea was, you know, LinkedIn video, obviously the format that would work really well is short form CEO interviews. Um, because you know people can watch mobile video, make sure there's captions so people can read it. You know, readable video is really important, and it also is something that I like. Like I, I generally just because my job, I'm a professional extrovert, so I'm constantly meeting people, so it's pretty easy for me to like take out a camera. And the videos are 90 seconds long. They're unproduced. They're shot on my iPhone. I do two a week, right? So it's three minutes of content a week. Uh, it's not crazy, and I probably get 
I think in total, I've gotten something like one to 1.1 million views on them since I started about a year ago. And so it's cool. And that's just like, they work, they scale, they're super viral. And they're a good example, I think of, you know, if you get the underlying content right, a lot of the other things don't matter, right? They're not super well-produced. They're not, um, they're not heavily marketed. I just post them on LinkedIn. And it's really about getting that, that thing right. And what's interesting now is you're seeing, I think you're seeing more people doing something very similar. It doesn't really work for them because I think, again, that idea of familiar novels is really important. Like you just can't keep doing the same thing everyone else is doing. And so like for me, the thing I always tell people is like, you know, the thing someone needs to do on LinkedIn video that would do so well is like someone needs to do like MTV Cribs for startup offices on LinkedIn video. Like that would do phenomenal. Um but like, don't keep doing the same thing over and over again because it's really, really hard to capture that initial attention if you're doing the same thing, right? At this point, I've built a big enough LinkedIn audience that sort of self-perpetuates. But if you're starting right now, doing video interviews on LinkedIn is like super crowded and difficult to do now. And so that's not where you should start. Think about what is that thing you can do that would be that, that little twist on it, right? That would make it more interesting. That would make it more compelling. That would make it stick out from the rest. A big secret to Alan's success on LinkedIn has been doing the unscalable, which tends to be something in the marketing space we hear a ton about, but still refuse to do, mainly because it requires more work than sending mass emails or automating workflows. But having a relationship with the audience, those one-to-one interactions, is what has made his content so engaging. Going back and forth, having conversations with people, like in the comments, I think a lot about being below the fold. It's not just about the video, but it's about the interactions with people. I try and reply to every single comment. Uh, it doesn't take that much time, right? It's like in between meetings and stuff, I'll just like pop on and answer a few comments. And so I think having that relationship with the audience is really important and making them feel a part of the process, right? So sometimes when I post content, I'll post, there's like, there's sort of like characters in my content. There's like me, there's my dog, there's people in my company, there's like my friends who you see in these interviews and right. And so basically I have this sort of this narrative arc that's flowing through the content that you can sort of follow the threads and you see things and you know, there's characters that have come back and like my dog comes back. Certain interviews that have come multiple times and you create this relationship with the audience by you know, making clear to them and acknowledging their existence and that, hey, they've seen some of this before, they've heard some of this before. And, and so, you know, that's really important. I wanted to end the episode on Alan's take on consumption as it relates to creativity and how fully immersing yourself in familiarity is how you can truly achieve massive success with creativity. If you want to start a, uh, a disruptive grocery company, spending time inside of your lo- local grocery store, understanding uh, consumer interactions, understanding the P&Ls of running a produce department, things like that. Uh, That's how you truly understand what it takes to creatively disrupt and build something that's wildly successful. Or as Alan says it best, if you want to connect the dots, you have to have the dots there to connect. Well, one of the things that's really important is since familiarity and novelty is so important, one of the things I talk about in the book that's really important to creativity is actually, um, maybe somewhat counterintuitively, is actually about consumption. So one of the things I talk about in the book is that these great creative geniuses I interviewed, they all spend a lot of time consuming information in their narrow vertical. So it's not about going wide, but going very, very deep, because this is what allows you to learn what is familiar. You have to understand what's already out there if you want to understand what's familiar or novel. So I talk in the book, I interviewed 
Ted Sarandos, the chief content officer of Netflix. And he talks about how he literally was at one point a video rental store clerk and watched every single movie in the store, every single movie in the store. And that's part of how he learned his taste, his ability to understand what's new, what's old, what's relevant, what's not relevant. And so I think that's a really important thing for people to realize that we have in our culture, this myth around creativity is all about doing. It's very, very focused on doing. But the best creators actually spend a huge amount of time, not only initially, but ongoing in their career, consuming. Because consuming is how, A, you sort of percolate those subconscious ideas you mentioned, and B, it's how you know what's going to be relevant. And so I think that's a very important place to start, right? If you want to connect the dots, you have to have the dots there to connect. All righty. Thanks for joining me. For this week's episode on the Fake It Till You Make It podcast, thanks for Alan for joining me. And remember, June 12th, which is tomorrow, if you're listening to this when it comes out, is when Alan's book, The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time, comes out. He's doing a bunch of book events this week, even one in Boston on Wednesday. So I'll link up everything in the description below. And until the next episode, I'll talk to you guys soon.